Thank you for uh, your word. And one of the things your word teaches us, Lord, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against uh, powers and principalities and authorities in high places, in dark places, high places, Lord. And uh, we, we look at this text today and we get a little bit of an idea of just some of the things that Satan does in order to thwart your plans for, for your kingdom. And uh, Lord, as we look at this uh, evil plan that he uh, perpetuated on the earth uh, just before the flood or the years before the flood, Lord, help us to look at this and, and see if maybe we see some correlation to the world in which we live now. And if that's so, Lord, then uh, we can tell from that that maybe time is really short, that things are not going to get better and better. They're going to get worse and worse, more wicked and more evil as time goes on. And as, as uh, the judgment uh, approaches, Lord, that uh, this time not through water, Lord, but through fire, uh, we just ask that, uh, Lord, that we prepare ourselves for that time. Lord, we prepare ourselves for the life that you have for us to live in a dark and evil time. So, Lord, there's some really important lessons here as we introduce this subject of the flood. So I ask today, Lord, that by the power of your spirit, Lord, that you teach us these lessons. And uh, we ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. When I was a young boy, uh, I went to a Bible-believing church uh, my early years. And uh, in all of those churches, one of the favorite subjects that was taught uh, in Sunday school and from the pulpit was the story of the flood and the story of Noah. And that's what we're going to begin to be looking at today. And the way that story was told, it went something like this. Uh, there was this really frail old man named Noah, who lived uh, in the very wicked time on earth. And God looked down and he stumbled upon this man, Noah, and he saw this man, Noah, and he said, you know, he's leading a pretty good life. Everybody else has, has gone uh, totally overboard in their wickedness, but, but Noah's a pretty good man, and he's got a wife who's a pretty good woman and three sons who are pretty good guys, and their wives are pretty good uh, wives, and so I'm going to spare them from this judgment that I'm about to bring upon the earth. And so uh, at some point uh, before the flood, God called Noah, and uh, he told Noah that, hey, if you want to survive this flood, you're going to have to build an ark. And Noah began to build that ark probably about 100 years before the flood began, and he he began to construct the ark, and also during that time, he was a preacher of righteousness who warned the world uh, that judgment was coming, and that's kind of the way the story went. Uh, and the main lesson from that that we were taught was that, that uh, uh, you, you want to be like Noah because we live in a wicked age, and so you want to live righteously before God. You want to live in a, such a way that you will be spared the judgment. And while God leaves you here during those years before the judgment comes, uh, you should be a preacher of righteousness uh, by the way you, uh, mainly by the way you live your life. And that's really the main way that Noah preached. And that was kind of the message. There were even, even some teachers who, who taught that Noah was just a fictional character uh, and there was no such thing as a worldwide flood. It was just one of those floods, kind of like we have here in Lafayette. You know, we have floods all the time here in Lafayette. We, we wonder sometimes if, if maybe the, this is the judgment. We see the waters coming down. And, and uh, they had just this localized flood, and, and it was a story that was just meant to be symbolic of, of uh, spiritual truths, uh, truths about uh, the fact that uh, God blesses those who are good, and he punishes those who are wicked. Uh, now, in both of those stories, the, first, the second story I just told you, obviously we see the problem with it, but in both of those stories, there are some serious errors. So what we want to do before, as we go into chapter 6 and our study of the flood, 
we want to correct some of those errors. And let me, let me talk about a few of those errors. First of all, this idea that the narrative of the flood is a fictional story, you can throw that out right away. And if you believe that, and if you want to believe that, you might as well take your Bible and tear it up because the Bible will have none of that. Because just listen to some of the verses about the flood that I'm going to quote to you here, and listen to what it says. The Lord himself in Isaiah 54, 9 has this to say about the flood. He says, for I have sworn that the waters of Noah, he's talking about a specific individual, would no longer or will never again cover the earth. Now, what kind of flood was the Lord talking about in Isaiah? Was he talking about a localized flood with a fictional character? No, he was talking about a real guy named Noah, and he was talking about a worldwide flood. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. He says, Divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which eight souls were saved from the water. Eight souls sounds to me like that's pretty literal, like it's definitely specific. Peter also says in 2 Peter 5, he said, The Lord saved Noah, one of eight people. Now that, you can't be any more specific and literal than that. A preacher of righteousness bringing in, bringing in the flood on the world, on the whole world. Now, let's get the definitive authority's word about the flood. So turn with me over to, to chapter 24 of Matthew, and we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about the flood. And I, I would say, seeing he's the creator, and he's the one who brought the flood upon the earth, uh, and he's the one who judged the earth, and he's the one who's going to save the earth, then he probably uh, would be the one we would want to listen to when we got our theology about the flood. So go with me to Matthew 24 and look down at verse 37, beginning in verse number 37. And listen to what Jesus says. He, notice that's in red. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now hang on to that thought for a minute. But listen to what he says about the flood. He says, for in, as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Now let me ask you a question. Is that literal? When you're eating and drinking, you can't get any more literal than that. Giving in marriage, being married, those things are literal events. He says, giving in marriage until the day Noah, a, an individual guy named Noah, entered the ark, a real guy named Noah, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus was certain or taught, let me put it this way, he taught that the flood was about a literal family who was saved from the flood, and they went on a literal ark, and it was a worldwide flood. So listen to me. Be very careful of people who teach otherwise. People who teach that somehow the flood is symbolic, stay away from those kind of teachers, those kind of theologians. Because if they don't believe in a literal flood, they don't believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ because look at verse number 39. He says, he says, and they did not know until the flood came and took them away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man. And that's the case. People who don't believe in a literal Noah, a literal worldwide flood, don't believe in the literal second coming of Jesus Christ. Most of them don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what does Paul say about those who don't believe in the resurrection? If you don't believe in the resurrection, you have no hope. You might as well eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. Somebody called me this past week and they, they asked me what I thought about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And they said they had heard me say from the pulpit that he's not saved, that he wasn't saved. Now, he's a hero in evangelical Christianity right now. Everybody talks about, in quotes, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was part of what's called the Neo-Orthodox movement. Now, you can study that if you want to. It's really hard to study those people because they use fancy terms 
and they use fancy terms to describe, or, or these big words to describe big words that they've made up, and then others use big words to describe the big words that the big words they used to, to, that they made up to describe the big words. And so you get into this circular knowledge, and it's really hard to understand what they're saying. But let me tell you, if you dig down deep, let me tell you what they're saying. They don't believe in the miracles of the Bible. And, and that has permeated the entire church. And if you don't believe in the miracles of the Bible, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, for example, would not believe in a literal flood. He believed that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ really wasn't raised from the dead, that, what, that Jesus Christ was raised, his spirit was raised, his body stayed in the grave, but his spirit was raised, and it now lives in the church. Have you heard that before? And so Jesus lives through his church. Well, there's some truth in that because Jesus does live through his church. But let me tell you what, if Jesus didn't have the power to raise his body from the grave, then so what if he lives in the church? I mean, the thing that makes him powerful in us is the fact that he was resurrected from the grave. So if you throw out the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you might as well throw this Bible away. You have nothing. And see, it all goes all the way back to Genesis, and that's why Genesis is so, is so important. If you don't believe these truths in Genesis as literal truths, you really have no true religion, and it's going to permeate everything you believe all the way down the line. And so we just want to throw that out right away. Noah was a literal character, and it was a literal worldwide flood that took place. Now, now there is plenty of evidence for a literal worldwide flood. We're going to get into that later on. But if you don't have to check your brains at the, at the door in order to believe in a literal worldwide flood and in a literal Noah, there is plenty of evidence for a literal worldwide flood. That flood was not a localized flood. And, and uh, I'll turn you on to some, some uh, resources that you can study on your own if you want to do that later on when we get to that part, when we get to the flood. But we'll, we'll, we'll save that for later. Now, secondly, you want to get this picture out of your head that Noah was an old man. He was this frail old man. You got to get that out of your head. And that's really hard to do because every painting you've ever seen of Noah, he's depicted as an old man. My wife loves Noah music boxes or the ark music boxes. And she has several of those. And on every one of those little boxes, Noah is this old guy, older than me, he's, he's a real old guy, and he's got this long, flowing, white beard, and for some reason, he's got a red coat on. I can't figure it out. I guess they're trying to get him to look like Santa Claus or something. I guess that's the, you know, that's the, the meaning behind that. But Noah, if you remember, was 600 years old when he went into the ark. Now, that seems like a pretty old man, doesn't it? But they, people were living in his day to be a thousand years old. And so the aging process, the kind of process that people my age are going through now where your body begins to deteriorate, actually mine's not doing that. Most older peoples are beginning to deteriorate. But when that process, that aging process really takes hold, that's late in your life. And so Noah, that probably didn't happen to Noah until he was almost 800 years old. So Noah was in his prime. I mean, and, and, and he was, you know, he was 500 years old when he had these three sons that went on to the ark. But I got to believe he had more sons than just the three sons. Go back with me to Genesis, and, and we won't go there right now, but in Genesis uh, chapter 9, we're told that, that, uh, that Noah, uh, we're told in Genesis 9 that these were the sons of Noah who... Uh, entered the ark and who came off the ark after the flood. Now, that, the way that's worded, that tells me that he had other sons other than just Noah. So you got to get this idea out of your head that Noah only had three sons and the three sons only had three wives. I think he had a lot of other sons and a lot of other daughters because he was 500 years old when he had Shem, Jabeth, and what's the other one? Huh? Ham, yeah. So he was 500 years old then. So, so uh, he probably had had a lot of children. Now, that makes this story even that much more tragic for Noah. Because imagine what it must have been like to get on that ark without all of your children. You know, it reminds me of Lot. Remember the story of Lot when, when God told Lot, or Abraham, that, 
that uh, he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And then Abraham told Lot, and those angels came and they warned Lot. Well, Lot went out and he had all sorts of children there in, in Sodom. And he went out and he tried to warn those children. And what did they do? They laughed at him because he had lost his witness. And so, so he had lost his witness because he was a pretty worldly guy. And so the only ones that went with him were his wife and his two daughters. And, and how tragic was that? And his wife was so worldly, she turned around and looked back and was turned into a pillar of salt. Now, there's a warning there for us. There is judgment that's about to come upon this earth. Let me tell you what. If judgment doesn't come upon this earth, it's not going to be, we're not going to have happy days from now on here in the United States of America. God is going to judge this country if we don't turn around. And I don't see us turning around. If Katrina can't turn us around, I don't, if all the disasters, this earthquake in, in Alaska, this, this, the Democrats taking over Congress. Now, I'm joking about that. I mean, if these things can't turn us around, then, then what's going to turn us around? It's going gonna, it's gonna to take something really bad. And when that judgment comes, where do you want your children to be? You want your children to be in the Lord in a close relationship with the Lord. Parents, that is your, grandparents, that is our responsibility to raise those children, to protect them from the coming judgment. Not just to protect them from the coming judgment, but, but to let them know the blessings of knowing the Lord, but also to protect them from the coming judgment. And that judgment is coming upon this earth, and, and it's coming soon. Because as Jesus said there in that passage we just looked up, as in the days of Noah, so will the things be uh, when the Son of Man comes upon this earth. And i got to tell you, we're looking a lot like the days of Noah, uh, even in the United States of America today. So you want to get your children into the ark. You want to get them into Jesus Christ. Now, there's another error that needs to be corrected in most of these stories about Noah. When you listen to people preach about Noah, it's almost as if God was somehow surprised at the wickedness that was on the earth. He looked down and he, and, and the Bible speaks in anthropomorphic terms. In other words, they, the Bible presents God as a human being, and he is in Jesus Christ, but he's still God. And just because he's a human being and he's God, we can't throw out the fact that he's omniscient, that he's omnipresent that he's omnipotent, that he has all knowledge, that he has all power, that he's everywhere. We can't throw those out. And so God didn't just look down one day and say, oh man, what's happened here? Look how wicked the people on the earth have become. Man, I got to find somebody to save the human race. So he, so, I, so he looked around and there was Noah living this good life, living for the Lord, walking with the Lord. And he said to himself that day, he said, you know what, I'm going to save Noah. And I'm going to save his family. That's not the way it happened. When you tell that story like that, what you're doing, you're, you're, you're denying the sovereignty and election of God. Look, the Lord knew when he created Adam and Eve how wicked humanity was going to become. He knew that at one day would come when he would have to judge. And he knew the day. He knew the exact day. That's why he called Methuselah Methuselah. When Methuselah dies, the judgment will come. How did, how did Enoch know that to call his son, name his son Methuselah? Because the, God, because the God of the universe knew the day that the flood was coming. He knew that before the foundation of the world. Let me tell you one other thing he knew. He knew that Noah would be the one who would go on the ark and save humanity. He knew that before the foundation of the world. Now that changes a lot of things. Because now what do you think he did for Noah when Noah was growing up? He did everything he could, which he can do anything he wants, to protect Noah from this evil world. And that's what he does for you. And that's what he does for me. If he didn't, let me tell you where you would go. You would go the way of the world. So never throw out the election and sovereignty of God in these, in these, uh, uh, in these stories. And, and, and in the same way God knew that, that one in the year 1656, after creation, he was going to destroy the world with a flood. He also knew the day that would come when he would have to judge the world again in the great tribulation. So that date has already been set. God knows exactly when that's going to happen. Now, the most common 
era and the most serious era we want to address. And that's this idea that Noah and his family were spared the judgment because they deserved it. You better throw that out right away. And there's a lot of people that teach that. Sunday school teachers, don't teach that to your little children. Don't tell them, oh, look how good Noah was. If you'd be like Noah, then God will spare you of the judgment. That is not the reason he was spared. Now, it does say, look in your, look, go back to Genesis chapter 6. And this is, a, this is a very interesting passage here. He says in verse number 9, he says, this is the genealogy. There's that Toledoth again. So we're, we're hitting a new subject, the subject of Noah. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Now, that sounds to me like he's a pretty good guy. Maybe he did deserve to be spared the judgment of the flood. But that's not the case. Whenever you look at a verse, you've got to put that verse in its context. You've got to put it in its context of the entire Bible, and you've got to put it in its context of that particular passage. And let's do that so we don't get confused here, or we don't misinterpret why Noah was spared uh, the judgment. In Psalms chapter 14 and Romans chapter 3, the, the, the Bible says this, there is none righteous, no, not one. There never has been except for Jesus Christ, none. Noah is no exception. So that's the reason when we get to Genesis 9, we're given this story about Noah after the flood. What did Noah do after the flood? I, like I said last week, he grew him a grapevine and he got drunk. And he did something else that we don't, we, it's kind of a mysterious thing. We're not given total, uh, the total story. Uh, he got naked before his son. Some people say he committed some type of homosexual act. That might even be possible. We don't know. We don't know for sure, but that's a pretty sordid story. And it's given to us about this perfect, just man. So obviously he wasn't perfect in the sense that some people teach he was perfect. He was not living purchase, purpose, perfectly upon this earth. And, and so you look back at verse number eight. Here's the context. And in, in, in of the passage, look at verse number 8. Here's why Noah was spared. Verse number 8 tells us, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Friends, that's why Noah was spared. That's why you're spared. And that's why I'm spared. Because we found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God looked down on us, not because we were good people, he looked down on us because our names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. And we found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You have nothing to boast of if you're saved. Noah had nothing to boast of. He was just like us. He was spared because of grace. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So what does it mean that he was perfect in his generations? that he was a just man. I think he was a good guy. I mean, obviously, if you know the Lord and you walk with the Lord and you found grace in the sight of the Lord, you're going to be a godly person. You're going to be a good person. So, so he was a good person relative to the world, but he was not a perfect person. So what does this mean? What, why did the flood come? Why was Noah considered perfect? Well, that's what we want to discuss today as we introduce uh, Genesis, uh, as we introduce the Genesis flood. And, and we're going to do that by looking at just uh, four verses. And the reason these verses are given to us here is so that we can understand two things. Why Noah was chosen and why God judged the earth. Why was this terrible flood? I mean, can you imagine? Say the, the, uh, the high estimates of how many people were on the earth at the time of the flood. 17 billion people. Can you imagine... God killing 17 billion people. I mean, many of those who were children, babies, 17 billion of them, I mean, less eight, wiped out by that flood. What kind of God would do that? And a lot of people 
point the finger at God here. Well, I'm not going to worship a God who would kill 17 billion people, five billion, somewhere between five and 17 billion people. I mean, what kind of God would do that? Well, we get an explanation of why it happened, and it's given to us in this very cryptic, interesting passage that we get in chapter 6, beginning in verse number 1. So let's, let's just read this. I'm going to read the whole passage that we're going to cover today, but don't get antsy and think we're going to leave. we still got a while. All right. Verse number 1 says, Now it came to pass when man began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them. Now, what man are we talking about? We're talking about men and daughters born to, to every genealogy. We're talking about the genealogy of Cain, the genealogy of Seth, and any other genealogy. There were, so so this, this opens up what's happening here. Uh, save that, because there's, there's, there's an interpretation that kind of ignores that. We'll look at it in just a second. But it says, Now it came to pass, when man began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them that the sons of God, very interesting, the sons of God saw the daughters of man. They were beautiful. I mean, you, get, you go back, this is early times. I mean, no mutations. I mean, everybody, you know, looked like Bo Derek in her prime. I mean, all the girls did, and they saw these daughters. I mean, all, y'all, all you ladies look like that today, too. I'm not... Man, I'll get myself in trouble anyway. Especially my wife. <laughs> but anyway, they were beautiful. And the angels looked down. Uh-oh, I gave it away. All right, these sons of God looked down, and they saw the daughters of man, that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord, now that tells you something. Where was the woman's choice in this? I mean, why, why didn't the woman say no? I mean, women, you, you have a right to say no to men. You have a right to say no, but that's a whole other subject. I'm, I'm not going to get myself in trouble on that either. Verse number three. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. What the Lord's saying, after this flood, this isn't going to happen again. They're not going to have 900 years to mess up like they messed up this time. Their life is going to be short, and, 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 and these evil people aren't going to be able to leave, live that long and reproduce themselves and, and mess up the world as fast as they messed it up this time. They're going to do it again, but they're not going to do it as fast as they did this time. Only took 1,656 years. See, we're 6,000 years past that now. And, and the only reason it hasn't gone down the tubes is that God limited how long evil people could live. All right, then it says in verse number four, there were giants on the earth in those days. Very interesting. And also afterward, when the sons of gods came into the daughters of men, they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old. Look, not just giants in stature. They were men of renown. They were most, the most prominent men in the world's society. They, they were the wisest men in the world's eyes. Sound familiar? Now, there's two main interpretations of these four verses right here. There's really about five or six, but I've narrowed it down to two. And, and because they, 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 you can get the gist of it through these two interpretations. The first interpretation is that the sons of God were the sons of Seth. Because remember the line of Seth was the godly line. And you'll hear this interpretation most often when you get and go to a commentary and look for an interpretation of this passage. Uh, and, and the sons of Seth looked down at all these Bo Derricks in Cain's line, all these beautiful women, and, and they were seduced by their beauty, by, uh, by, the, by the beauty of the daughters of Cain, and they took them as their wives, and when they took them as their wives, they took up their evil ways. Now, there's a history of that in the nation of Israel. Remember how they were, were told not to marry foreign wives? And they married foreign wives anyway, and it polluted the nation by doing that. 
and they were judged for that two or three times? Okay, well, the same thing was, according to this interpretation, was happening here. They were marrying into evil. And so they became evil and their children became evil. And, and there is a warning in the Bible that seems to fit that. I mean, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, we're told, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship does righteousness have with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? So, so what it's saying there is when a believer marries an unbeliever, or a believer enters into some type of business relationship or into some other type of relationship with an unbeliever, they're asking for trouble somewhere down the line. That's, that's the warning there. But being unequally yoked, and here's where some pastors and teachers get this wrong, that is not a sin that demands the final judgment of God, as some people teach. Somehow, if you marry somebody who's not a believer, you're going to end up going to hell. Or you're never, your marriage has no chance of making it. When I got married, neither my wife nor I were born again. And so, man, we weren't just unequally yoked. We were going every which direction. And, and so, but God in his grace, in his grace, saved us both at the same time. And in five years into our marriage, and, you know, we've been married 30 years as believers. And I, I tell you what, I put my marriage up against anybody's marriage. I, 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 I mean, I plan on being married to Brenda forever. You know, that's the way I see it. And, 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 and I praise God for that. So don't say, you know, oh, well, you can't be happy because you, you married an unbeliever. That's not the case. God can work in any situation where people are willing to repent. But now I don't recommend that process. That's not the way you go. The way you want to go is not to be unequally yoked. Because here's the problem. It most, in most cases, it doesn't work. Because the godly person is going to want to do things differently from the ungodly person. And, and when, when they disagree on these things and, they ref, and, and, the, and, and the ungodly person refuses to compromise, well, there's only one choice. They're going to battle or the godly person is going to have to compromise what they believe. And woe to you if you're a godly person and you compromise what you believe. You're better getting divorced than you are compromising what you believe. And so you see how this causes all sorts of trouble. Uh, so so uh, that's not something you want to do. And, and I can see where it's to some degree this might fit. But that's not what happened here. Uh, uh, this isn't the reason the whole world was judged because people were unequally yoked. Uh, uh, something much more sinister was going on here. Something much more sinister than that. That's, that's not, that's not a, something God recommends, and he warns you against that. But that's not something he's going to send floodwaters and fires down on your head for doing. There was something much more sinister going on here, and that brings us to the... the Second interpretation, which is the correct interpretation, that these sons of God are angels. Now, if they're angels procreating with God's creation in an unnatural way, what kind of angels are they? They're unnatural, evil angels. They're bad angels. And so they bore children with the women on the earth, and some of those children became a race of giants. Now, let me ask you a question. If this is the case, and we're going to just, I'm going to show you why it is later on. If this was the case, when, when this was going on, do you think that these angels were recognizable by the women that they had relationships with? I mean, do you think they had wings and halos? Well, they obviously had their halos taken away, so they didn't have halos. I mean, were they glowing with the glory of an angel's glow, glow with? No, they took on human form. They took on human form or they possessed male human beings. And then they produced these children that were half angel, demonic, and half human. Now, there's plenty of evidence for all of this. 
You look at the evidence in paleontology, you look at the fossil records, and it's amazing. You go back to where they can find areas that seem to be post uh, antediluvian, pre flood. Uh, they find giants of all sorts. They find giant uh, elephants, we call what? Mammoths. They find evidence piled all together like some kind of big water pushed them all together and they froze up in the Arctic somewhere. Oh, well, they just all migrated up there and then died, is what the evolutionists want to tell us. Sounds to me like a flood pushed them all up there. Saber toothed tigers. And they actually can find some of the blood cells in these mammoths that supposedly are millions of years old that have survived through the ice. Saying that things aren't millions, hundreds, that they're not hundreds of millions of years old. That would be impossible for those blood cells to survive. So, so you have these mammoths, these giant tigers, these saber-toothed tigers. Uh, here's the worst one they had. Giant cockroaches. Could you imagine a cockroach the size of my cat? You know, I mean, and then in the midst of all of these things, they found footprints of giant human beings. So, you know, not only that, you look at all the ancient writings since the flood that have survived, and there's, in, in all of these writings, there are these legends, people, sec, the secular world says they're legends, these legends of giants. At some point, there's got to be some reality behind those legends. Now, certainly the legends are kind of wacky sometimes, but some of them seem to be just regular old stories, and they have giants in those stories. And so it's, I, I, I think there's plenty of evidence physically for the fact that there were giants. But let's look at this spiritually or theologically. These sons of God, which is the Hebrew word ben Elohim, ben son, Elohim, God, uh, everywhere else in the Old Testament are called, interpreted as angels. There's no doubt they're angels. They're spoken of as angels. Job 38, verse 6 and 7, let me just give you that as an example. Where were you, God asked Job, when I laid the world's cornerstone, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, who are those sons of God? They've got to be angels because Adam and Eve, this was at the creation, before Adam and Eve were created, or as they were created, uh, they shout for joy. In the New Testament, the name, the word sons of God doesn't refer to human beings who are sons and daughters of, of mothers and fathers, it refers to, to Christians who have been created by God as new beings. In other words, you're not born again by a new mother and a new father. You're born again by God. And when you go over the genealogy of Jesus Christ over in Luke chapter 3, Adam is called he, everybody else is the father, the son of a father, the son of a father, the son of the father. You get to Adam. He is the son of God. Why is he the son of God? Because he had no mother or no father like the angels. So consistently through scripture, when you're, when, you're, when you're speaking of a son of God, you're speaking of a creation of God, not someone who's been birthed by a uh, mother and a father. Now, so there's no doubt that these sons of God here are angels, but we know they're not good angels because, again, God would not have adorned, ordained what they did. Uh, that's why they're called, they're fallen angels, and that's why they're called the Nephilim in the Bible. That word giants there in verse number four is the Nephilim. I think if you have the King James, it probably has the Nephilim. Anybody got the King James? Everybody got new King James? King James, what does it have, giants or Nephilim? Verse number four, third word, giants. Okay. Well, the reason the word giants is used there is because in the Septuagint, Nephilim is translated as gigantin, which we get our word giant from. And so they assume there that they're giants. And we, we learn stories about these Nephilim later on that tell us that they were giants. But the name, the word Nephilim simply means fallen one or mighty one. 
And both of those meanings fit these, sons, these, these, these children that were born from these sons, this, this relationship with the sons of God and the women on this earth. They were mighty ones and they were, they were fallen ones, just like their, their dad was a fallen one. Uh, they were fallen ones. And, and so they were part demon and part human. Now, what's that tell you? Let me tell you what, one thing it tells you. That's in, that person can never be saved. They, they're done. That person cannot be saved. They're, they're, it's, it's over. Part demon, part human. Genetically, you cannot be saved. And so eventually, these demonic children, half demon or half angel, half human, begin to pollute the genetic pool because they took wives and they had children and the girls took guys who weren't genetically polluted and they married them and had children. And, it, and over a period of 1,656 years, the entire genetic pool was polluted except for one family. And that was the family of Noah. That's why it says in Genesis 6, 9, Noah was perfect in his seed. Literally is what it says. He was perfect in his seed. His seed had not been polluted. He had not, and the sons he had that were with him on the ark, had not been polluted by this terrible plot of Satan to destroy the human race, to make it part demon and part human. So Noah wasn't a perfectly righteous guy. He was perfectly genetically pure. That's why he was spared. Now, here's the question of the day. Could all of this happen again? I mean, is it possible that in this post-Diluvian world in which we live, that the genetic pool is being polluted by demons? Well, that couldn't happen because women don't, aren't promiscuous in our society. That just couldn't happen. Listen, women who go in and out of bed with a different guy all the time are exposing themselves to this possibility, in my opinion. Now, again, I don't know for sure. I haven't checked. I don't know how to check the DNA to, to tell if you've got demonic blood in you or not. But if this is going on like it possibly might be, there's that danger. There's that danger that our genetic pool is being polluted. And we see it happened. It, we know it happened because a thousand years after the flood, remember when the spies went into the land of Canaan uh, after the exodus, all of them came back and they said, you're not going to believe what we saw. We saw Nephilim in the land. Numbers 13, 33. They specifically called them Nephilim. We saw giants in the land. And, and you go through the Old Testament, I mean, at different locations, and you see these different forms of giants. You see the Rephaim, the Anakim, the Eman, the Zuman. Remember the Philistine giants? I mean, remember Goliath uh, in, in 2 Samuel? We're to, told about a descendant of the Rephaim, uh, Rephaim uh, a giant uh, with six fingers uh, on each hand and six toes on each hand. I love that story. I preached a sermon on that story before. because I just love that story because it was David's nephew who killed that giant. I mean, he looked up to his father, I mean, his uncle, and he saw what his uncle had done, and he said, I'm going to be like my uncle. I'm going to be a giant killer. There's a great lesson in that, by the way, if you hadn't picked it up yet. We all want to be giant killers. So, so there's all sorts of evidence 
that this to some degree has taken place since the flood. And so, you know, you ask the question, maybe here in the 21st century, is it possible that the genetic pool is being polluted by demons? You know, years ago, when I first got saved, I did what I call a thorough study in the Bible. I read through the Bible like three times right after I got saved. I mean, I just I couldn't put it down. I mean, it was just all of this great information. I read through J. Vernon McGee's all his commentary. I read all the way through his commentary. I, it didn't take me about, about like a month, and I'd read that whole commentary. That's how hungry I was for the Word of God. There were a couple of areas of Scripture as I was going through Scripture that really troubled me that I couldn't figure out. And one of them was, why would God, a good God, wipe out an entire world of people? And I just couldn't figure that out. And, 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 I, and I said, Lord, you've got to explain that to me. I mean, I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm I'm giving my life to you, but this sounds kind of cruel and mean. I mean, it doesn't sound like you, like the God I'm reading about in the New Testament. I mean, are you really the same God? And, and I prayed about that. I, I, I seriously prayed about that for a good while. And, and one day I had ordered this book from Southwest Radio Church in, in Oklahoma City. Uh, it's a prophecy club type thing. And, and, and uh, I'd ordered this book about... Russian subs and the Russian military and how it plays into the final days and how these subs are sitting off our coast of the United States, still all of them armed with nuclear weapons ready to destroy us at any moment. And I wanted to read this book that this general had wrote, and so I ordered this book. Well, sure enough, one day I, I was, had prayed about this very thing, and, I, and I, I went to the mailbox, and there was the package, and my book was there about the Russian subs. Well, it was a, they sent me the wrong book. They sent me a book called The Omega Conspiracy. It's written by Ide Thomas, Dr. Ide Thomas. And I began to read, read that book. I was, my plan was maybe to read it, send it back, get my other book. You know, but just, at least I was going to see what it had to say. But man, I never was going to send that book after I read it. I mean, in that book, he makes the post, the, the proposition that what went on in Genesis chapter 4 is exactly what's going on today. Like I said earlier in the message, I mean, you think those people knew that was going on? I mean, could they see the angels flying around procreating with these women? No. And then these demons, these demon children procreating with these women? No. They look like normal people. And so he makes the case that the reason God destroyed the world in this age, uh, in the age of the flood, was that the genetic pool was entirely polluted at that point except for Noah. And that that same process is taking place now on this earth. You know, and, and you know, I can't say that that's exactly, I can't say that I'm exactly sure that's what is happening. But I believe there's a strong possibility it is. I, I look around our world today, and there's something going on more than just demon possession. I mean, you look at the Muslim religion, and if you're a Muslim and I offend you, good. That's my intention. You need to get out of that if it's not too late. But if you look at the Muslim religion and their innate hatred for Israel, it's born into them. But you watch them on TV, little kids bopping their heads, crying out death to Israel. That hatred comes from where? It comes from Satan. And, I, I, you know, I'm not saying that Muslims can't be saved, but I, if you look at the history of Muhammad and the sexual evil things that he did and the way this all started out demonically, I've I got to believe there's something more than just possession going on here. That there's a race of evil permeating our world right now. Now, I'm not just picking on the Muslims here. I mean, you look at 
people today and they bear children and their children grows up and he doesn't know if he's a male or he's a female? And then you're called crazy because you think that's crazy? I, that's, there's something more than just demonic influence there. I wonder if there's some possession going on there. I mean, and if there's not possession, it may be people are being born with demonic genes. I mean, you look at Hollywood. Now, everybody picks on Hollywood, but goodness gracious, you look at the stuff that comes out of there now and how demonic it is and how polluted it is. And you know what? The more demonic, you, you make a movie called Hellboy and, and 100 million people go to see it. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like people gravitate to that kind of stuff. It's what they want. And you wonder if there's demonic genetic pollution there. You look at physical mutations that are going taking place. You look at the abilities, and I've got to be careful here, but I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing what I've seen in the last few years, the, the, the evolution of athletics, the evolution of science, the evolution of wisdom. I mean, you see people doing seemingly supernatural things that could never be done before. And you wonder if we're reaching that point. I definitely believe that what went on in the days of Noah, Jesus said, is going on today. Now, his primary context of saying that was that nobody's going to recognize the time when it comes because they're going to be marrying and giving in marriage and all of that kind of stuff. But there's a secondary comment, context there that is that the days of evil of Noah are going to be like the days when Jesus Christ returns to this earth. And I believe we, are, we have reached those days. Now, what kind of application can we get out of this? Because hopefully none of you have demon blood in you if you do. And I've had some people in, in, in my congregation, never mind, I probably shouldn't go there, but I've had people before that I felt did, they were at the very least demon-possessed. And I don't think about that about any of y'all other than, uh, <laughs> no. But, but what's the lesson here? You better guard your life. You better guard, you women here, you better guard who you go out with. You better guard who you have relationships with. Your parents better guard your children. I mean, you, you, you take a child now and you put a child in a situation where you don't know the people you're turning that child over to. What if they're demonically possessed? What if they're part demon? And you hear these stories of, I, I don't even want to repeat some of the stories I hear of pastors of what people have done to little babies. The evil sexual things they've done to little babies. I don't even want to repeat that. So before you turn your kids over to a doctor or a psychologist or a, or a babysitter or anybody, you better be doggone sure you know who they are. And, and it might be somebody in your family. And so you've got to protect yourself during these times. And I'm not trying to scare you because if you're found grace in the eyes of the Lord, he's going to protect you. But Noah had a lot of other children. He had a lot of other family members. It was just eight of them, eight souls that went on that boat. And so it's our job to get in that ark our ark is Jesus Christ, and to stay in that ark, to take our children in that ark and protect them, and he'll help us with that if we make that choice. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the, your word. And, Lord, how justified you are. There's so many people blaspheme you by, by, by questioning your judgments by questioning the flood, by questioning the great tribulation. Lord, it, it's only by your mercy that any of us survive. By your grace, Lord.
like Noah, we found grace in your eyes. And Lord, we thank you for that grace. Lord, we, from this lesson, we learned that any mission work we do, it, it's got to be guided, whatever kind of witnessing we do. I mean, you know, are we wasting our time? We're not going to save any demon-possessed or demon-genetic uh, person. Father, we can only save those who are, you know can be saved. That's why you got, have to guide everything that we do, Lord. You got our lives. You got our witnessing. You got our ministries. You, you got our families. Lord, we give it all to you. We want to live close to you and set our mind on things above and not on this earth. Father, we just thank you for your grace that we have through Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. You know, it's absolutely amazing to me that out of this wicked world, out of this world full of demons, this world full of wicked people, that God has chosen us to be sons and daughters of God. That's just amazing to me. And he didn't choose us because we deserve it. He chose us for one reason, grace. The grace that caused us to look to that cross, to look at him on that cross, and to appropriate his blood for our sins. That's what saves us, and that's it. Now, does that make us live righteously? Yes. 
but it's his blood. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. You go out into this wicked world, it makes you want to celebrate what Christ has done for us. Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he betrayed took bread, and when he broke it, he said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Thank you, Lord. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Y'all want to stand? We'll close in a song. Great week, God bless you.